This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 77 of the Healthy Critters Radio on the Horse Radio Network. Healthy Critters Radio is brought to you by Biostar US. Find them online at biostarus.com. On today's show, we interview four-star dressage judge Lee Tubman. In Tigopedia, we look at pancreatitis in dogs. Critter Nutrition focuses on on how to gauge quality bovine colostrum. And in Coffee Clatch, we discuss clipping or not clipping horses. Listen in. So Tiggs, Patty P, you're, you're in you're in the well world. I'm you're in, in the well, Welly I'm world, in Wellington, Florida, for the long winter. <laughs> yeah, and you've hit the ground running, haven't you? I, it's unbelievable. It's getting getting you a little off your normal organizational game, I think. A hundred percent. You know yeah. what it is? It's when when you live on a farm. There's there's a rhythm to the farm, and when you come into a more dense area where there's more people and there's more concrete and there's more activity, I, I, my poor brain just doesn't have a way to kind of deal with it right away. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget things. I like, I, I mean, I almost forgot the radio show today, even though I'd <laughs> written it down. It's, it's a big transition from well, farm and rural to suburban and more populated. Yeah, it's I mean it's a lot. It's a lot going on and it's and there's, you know, there's people that you haven't seen in a while that you want to go see and help and you know, it's a, it's a big difference. I mean, <clears throat> um I I always like the engagement of it and then I'm always so happy to go home because <laughs> just about the time when I'm like, you know, it's time for me to leave. It's just it you know, it all works out just about the way it's supposed to. Yeah, I, I'm glad that they're keeping the circuit a little shorter. You know, it's not mm-hmm. going all the way through April anymore because I think the horses and the people and the dogs, they're just, they're done. You know, yeah. they're just done. Well, so, I know for a while there was that big push to try to, you know, to try to really keep it going even longer, but looks like that's not going to happen. No, and I think I think three months is, is maximum. I mean, that's... Yeah. If, I mean, especially if you're continually showing every two weeks or three weeks, um, it's it's a lot. It is a lot. And it there's a lot, a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress here. So yeah. um, it's a it's a fascinating environment that you can get 15,000 horses in this small geographical area. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to think how it started out years and years ago, didn't it? <laughs> we, right? we remember. <laughs> yep. The days where instead of a Grand Prix village, it was Malaluka trees when we turned into WEF. <laughs> hey, all- just turning on, on South Shore was just nothing but polo fields. I know. I know. I know. I know. Well, it's it's exciting and it's fun to be there, but it's always good to get home. It's always good to be home, and I'm already thinking of my little red ruby slippers. <laughs> um, <laughs> come the end of March, it'll be time to be clicking my heels and going and, home. And, and going home. <laughs> but speaking of, one of the great things about Wellington are some of the most prominent 
riders, trainers, judges, um, vets, uh, farriers are all down here. Yeah, and the best of the best. The best of the best. And it's a fantastic opportunity to learn from, you know, these very accomplished masters. Mm-hmm. And we get to have one of those uh, masters on tonight, Healthy Critters, who is Lee Tubman. He's a four-star dressage judge. He's from Canada, but he lives in Wellington. And he's a fascinating guy. And we're going to talk about cross-training and getting a dressage horse fit. So let's bring him in. Sounds good. And we're here with Lee Tubman, who is a four-star dressage judge, originally from Canada, now from Wellington. And we wanted to have Lee on to talk about conditioning for dressage horses, whether cross-training is a good idea, how to get your horse fit. And we have just the guy to talk about this. So welcome to Healthy Critters, Lee. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So, I mean, we see a lot of semi-fit or not-so-fit dressage horses out and about. What are your tips for conditioning? Um, Well, I think that uh, tip number one would be uh, you have to actually spend some time out of the dressage arena. And and as you already mentioned, you know, referencing uh, cross-training. Um, I think there's two two issues, especially when I'm judging what I would see would be energy problem. The horse doesn't have enough energy to complete the task or the test, particularly if it's a high-level test. It's basically running out of gas. And for example, in the Grand Prix, the last movements down the center line, passage, piaf, passage, halt, that's not easy. And most of the horses come down the center line and, and they're out of fuel already. So, you know, there's a cardiovascular situation there. How fit is the horse? Uh, and secondly, um, a peripheral problem, and that would be, for example, uh, how strong is the horse in any given movement, taking into account what the movement demands. So, for example, shoulder in right, canter pirouette right. How strong is the horse on its right hind leg? Is it able to jump under and carry? So, for me, it's pretty important to think a little bit outside the box of being a dressage trainer and to to think a little bit more in its entirety of I am training. And what I mean by that is I have a gym right behind my house. So every day that I'm at home, I try to go. Even even on days when I don't want to go, I try and go and do something. And I'll do cardio, treadmill, and then I'll also do some strength training, but primarily to keep things balanced out. And then above and beyond that, maybe to be stronger in a, in a certain area. And I believe you have to do that with the horse. And I think anybody that's taking part in training a horse needs to take part in actual training for themselves mm-hmm. and to have a good idea as to what would it take, what does it take physically um, to be able to perform some, some of these movements and some of these tests. And also to, uh, in a way, in a friendly way, and this was also something when I grew up that was always, it was always a norm, and that was you trained above the level that you were competing. Yeah. So you would, you would have a, a level of proficiency and, and competency. And I think that these days that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, these are issues. When I grew up, I was on a farm and I never walked on level surface ever mm-hmm. unless I went to school. And when I left the farm, I had many different types of jobs that uh, I had. And one of them was working in a 
machine shop rebuilding engines. And oh, wow. I had to walk on cement. And I had only walked on cement briefly, maybe to be in the city for an afternoon on the sidewalk. But to stand on cement for eight hours, <sighs> after two weeks, my my legs, my IT bands were on fire. I, you know, and I changed shoes and boots and whatnot. And then when I went home back into the farm, I found it very awkward to walk across um, a summer followed field. And what I mean by this is my mechanics were so used to walking over an uneven surface to walk on a completely flat surface. I found that a little bit strange and the surface was completely hard. That would be the concrete floor. Mm-hmm. And then when I left there and I went back home in different intervals, my mechanics of how I was functioning was for a flat surface and I couldn't really walk across the field easily. You know, I'm like stumbling or walking through the hay field. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that this is also very true with uh, dressage horses because predominantly you're riding on a very flat groomed surface. So the concept of cross training, I think, is critical. And when I had horses down here, um, for the most part, I have to say, was really lucky we had a polo field beside the barn. Oh, the vast wow. majority of the time, I rode in the polo field. And yeah. I, I don't know how many steps I'm taking per day, mm-hmm. but it's a heck of a lot more than being in a 20 by 60 arena. Yep. And I would also uh, leave the farm at least once a week, maybe twice. And I would go out and I would do what I would call... Um, you know, gator search. I just hack a horse down the canals, looking in the, in the water, and you know, because it, it was new for me, right? I'm Canadian, so we don't have alligators, and and just looking, you know. But to get the horse off of off of that property or out of the indoor arena or get away from the little white fences, yeah. Um, and I think this was very, very critical for them physically, mechanically, and also uh, psychologically. Exactly. Yeah, they need a break. Yep, Cavaletti yep, is fantastic. Fantastic. We don't Thanks. use the Cavalettis enough, I don't think. I mean, uh, you know, in, in Europe, I, I think you see the use of Cavalettis way more with dressage horses than yeah, we I, see. I agree. We have Cavaletti um, Monday every day, um, every week at my barn. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I, a good just, idea. Yeah, I mean, and it gets them out. It does something different. Um, I mean, I couldn't agree. Like, everything you've said is so completely what I would agree with. I mean, it's, you know, and so many people get so confined thinking that they've got to practice these movements and get all of these things hundred percent the way they should be. And they, and they don't realize that that happens because you go out of the arena and, you know, work mm. different muscles and whatever. So that's just wonderful to hear that. Yeah. The other thing that I think is very interesting uh, as well. And that is, you know, when you look at the bottom of the dressage test, uh, the collective marks, uh, I, I refer to that as the vital organs. And, mm-hmm. in, you know, I got into judging, not because I wanted to judge, but to be very, very honest, I, I wanted to know how did I get my marks? And I also wanted to know where in the arena could they not see me do something, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. So you're sneaky, so that's what how you're it, saying. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to be, okay? So uh-huh. one judge, K and F, can't see your outside leg and rain. But that's why I got started in that. But uh, I'm glad I did because it, it really helped with, you know, my learning curve as a trainer, because when I saw these collective marks and I trained with really good people in North America and also in Europe, judge wise, what I came to understand was every day that I was riding and every moment that I was riding, I needed in my mind to be thinking about the quality of the gate, 
the impulsion, the submission, and what am I doing? And when I say like every moment, I really mean like every moment, because if I didn't do that, you fall into a, a, a trap of focusing on what the movement is and the execution of the movement. But when we look at where do you get your marks, your, your mark calibration comes from the quality of the gait, the quality of the throughness longitudinally and laterally, and the quality of the execution of the movement. Now, of those two things that I just said, three things I just said, the last one's the easiest one to teach, and the last one is the easiest one for anybody to ride. Mm-hmm. But if you look at FEI Young Horse classes, like four-year-old or five-year-old, I love these classes because it's all about the horse. Mm-hmm. So what I'm really saying is, you know, in these classes, you watch the horse trot, and is this an 8, 8.2, 8.4, is it a 9? What about the canter? What about the walk? So, you know, in training, you have to be uh, cultivating this idea of a quality gait, quality connection. And, and before you even do anything, are you at least at a seven? Are you at seven and a half? Are you at an mm-hmm. eight? Because if you are and you execute the movement properly, then you'll hold your baseline, which is seven, seven and a half or eight, whatever the number is. And then you have a chance to bump that up. And when you don't do that, this is where you end up having big problems. So I think in training, a lot of people need to be more aware of that. And when I'm teaching, I, I try to very often ask people, what are the collective marks? What, what, what are the phrases behind the titles? Well, listen, if you're a trainer, you should know that. Yeah. Because a dressage test, more or less, is an open book exam. Everything's laid mm-hmm. right out there. Directive ideas, collective marks. So I, I think that's also a very important um, point to add into the fitness level of, of the horse. Where do you think we are in the, the state of dressage in 2019? Well, I'm going to say that uh, I think I was very fortunate when I grew up, the people I got to work with and the time frame that I got to work. Um, and that would be very early 80s and, and on when, when things were really accelerating in North America. Uh, and, and I'm going to use the word mature, not old. But I'm going to say being more mature now, <laughs> right? And I think about when other people, when I was a kid, would tell me things and I would be kind of like, yeah, yeah, right, you know, and somewhat dismissive. But I'm going to say there needs to be more emphasis on the actual training of the horse in a timely fashion, meaning take your time. You know, you have one opportunity when, when you have something that's young and coming along, whatever it is, dog, horse, kid, whatever. And you have one opportunity. And any young horse that I had in the past years, I always looked at that as, okay, well, this is all about me. It's going to be a reflection of what I've done. So I would actually really try and ride that horse thinking from the concept of mistake-free and adding things to help it grow and and mature. Um, And when I grew up doing dressage in the 80s, we trained back then six days a week. I mean, one week was kind of, one day was, you know, hacking and easy, but we rode six days a week. And I think I only horse showed maybe five shows in the whole year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was predominantly, what are we doing training wise? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I feel we've gotten away from that. And, and now, uh, I hate to use the word commercial, but it's, it's kind of like Christmas, you know, like Christmas is quite commercial or Thanksgiving can be quite commercial. It's about buying things and whatnot, it's, you know, what is the essence of it? And I think that the essence of dressage really needs to be 
have you understood what you've been taught in, in theory and so on? And can you relay that information to the horse successfully so it's within the realm of classical dressage training? And then can you make sure when you do that that you never overdo it, yep. that that horse is ever lame? And can you make right. sure you never psychologically overdo it, that that horse mentally is stressed? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's the, that's the situation. There's so many competitions now and, and everything is, everything is geared towards, you know, competing and, and all that. I'm not saying that that's bad, but you know, you're asking for my personal opinion. Some yeah. personal opinion is, well, there's a time. point, yeah, there's a point, you know, there, there's, you know, there's a point to where I think that it, the, because it does become so commercial that it, that people that don't have a foundation like you're like you're saying and understanding, you know, about the training that they get down to let's say Wellington because it is a very commercial place and it has become very much a big business and there's plenty of people out there that still do it by the book and do it right but it's just very easy for people who don't know to fall yeah. into the trap of not bringing the horses out of the field or, or excuse me the arena and you know I, I can't tell you how many people um, I know that have gone to try horses in Wellington and they never took them out of the arena and then get them mm-hmm. home and the horse is like um, they have a problem Where and, am I? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah and it's sort of like what I mean I when I I just I think everything you're saying is just awesome because it's it's so true, and to hear it from someone like yourself, you know, who's been doing it um, for a while, not a long time, for a while, because <laughs> you're mature enough to know exactly. better and still have a lot more left in you. I'm just going to say, yeah, you know, um, it's just it's so refreshing to hear that because it is very hard well, to delineate. I don't I don't have any horses of my own now. Um, I ride other people's horses and uh, things like that, but. For me, the, the pleasure is in, in the training and, and what, what can you accomplish? Um, and also, uh, what can I accomplish thinking rather than trying to accomplish it physically? Uh, and a lot of people, when they're riding and training, uh, they don't think like that. And one of my philosophies, and I, and I ask people very often when I'm teaching, hey, what's your philosophy about you know, riding and training? And they don't really have one because no one's ever really asked that question. But philosophically, um, I looked at it this way. Uh, what can I achieve without having to be forceful? Not, not saying that sometimes you don't have to be firm and whatnot, but people need to understand that in most lessons, particularly when I was taught back then, um, it was all about physically riding the horse and different aids physically riding the horse mm-hmm. and do this and the horse will do that and capitulate. Well, here's how I think about that. The horse has a central processing unit just like we do. And if you want to control its musculature, you have to control its computer. If you can get that computer to focus on you, if you can keep that computer relaxed, then generally speaking, the horse is going to be much more willing and or giving to whatever it is you're asking. And anything that learns in in a fun and or relaxed environment, that learning will be ingrained. Anything that's learned through force and, and extreme pressure you you do it to get it done to meet that criteria at the moment but generally after that you don't retain that knowledge because it wasn't that much fun for you so mm-hmm. i think that that that's a really important thing because most people are out there riding and working um but here's a question you know why does your horse do any of this for you last weekend i was <laughs> up north so everybody's got to be in an indoor arena 
and they're going to be there for another four months. Yep. So I said to one person, what does your horse do anything for you? Why? And I said, to a degree, domesticated DNA. But I said, every day that you come in here, you need to make this interesting for that horse. You need to make that, that horse think, I, I want to go in there. And I said to her, you know, there'd be very often throughout a week that I'd be riding some, some horse and it would go extremely well. And I would immediately do my thing 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was, and I'd get off and go in. Now, I didn't ride it for half an hour, but I'd do that once in a while with each of them when they were really performing well, because psychologically now I've played with their head. Because mm-hmm. up until that point, oh, arena, 45 minutes, 35 minutes, 50 <laughs> minutes. So now it's like, whoa, what's going to happen here today? Because we yeah. pattern ourselves and they, they follow our patterns. So they completely know what's going to happen for the most part. Arena, riding, training, wash stall, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, you know, people need to do a lot more uh, thinking, not just physically trying to make these things happen. But I've always viewed training, quality training as a chess game. And thinking about, you know, what is the horse doing? And, and sometimes they do things to bait us to get us to react a certain way. And then who's training who? Mm-hmm. And are you smart enough to, to figure that out or see that coming? So I think that those are interesting points. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What a wonderful approach you have. Yeah, no and kidding. It, and, and you learned it at such it a young a age. You're so young. <laughs> oh, thank you. So complimentary. Hey, He's I think you're young, Jedi Master. You're looking young. I wouldn't yet. <laughs> well, Lee, thank well, you so much for coming on Healthy Critters. And I hope you'll be open to coming back so we can Absolutely. discuss more ways to, to help these horses. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Lee. It was a pleasure. Okay. Okay, bye bye everyone. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Hetty. Hi, Hetty. You people do not sound cheerful at all. Are you not excited? This is a proper <laughs> week of 2019. We have a lot to do, a lot to say. <laughs> Well, Thank you, Hedwig, for setting us straight. I was going to say, and you've got enough energy. In, Don't you uh, want to rock and roll? Get it yeah. done? Let's do it. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> we may need to talk to your servant when we're done this call yes. to see what's going on with you. How much chocolate have you had today? I've had no chocolate. Oh, poor Why dog. Why would you bring that up? <laughs> Yeah, Tigger, what were you thinking? <laughs> Shit. You're just you mean. Redirect, redirect. Thanks, Tigger. That's just a downer. <laughs> Way to put a bad moment on my sunshiny moment of happiness. <laughs> well, well, we have a great question for you. It is a good question. Right, ready? Patty? At any time. <laughs> Patty? Are you ready? What? Is your yes. favorite thing about your servant? <laughs> speechless. Hetty um, is speechless. It's the first time first ever. I'm ever. I know. <laughs> Wait, why did we talk? We should have. Someone write this down. What time is it? <laughs> and we <clears throat> we started off so saucy too. <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs>
is she still there? So, just to clarify, just to clarify, why is this an interesting question? Be- because <laughs> we, we're, we're servants I'm, too. I'm we're we're servants too, Hedwig. We, we have, have dogs and we're servants. crises. <laughs> There's a lot going on and you want to talk about my servants? Mm-hmm. Yes. We do. You know okay. why? This is a lighthearted. All right. well, this is where you want to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Many thousands of people are working without pay, but you want to talk about this. Well, okay. Uh-huh. No we do. problem. We want to know you why ready? your servant. <laughs> go ahead, Rain sorry. Drops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. You forgot cheese. Colored and crisp as those trudels. Doorbells and sleigh bells and snips. With noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Do you notice that I have not said a word at all about the stupid human that I employ? This is because she makes me feel sad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Hedwig. That says it all. So we are at the Tigopedia portion of our program, and we're going to ask Tigger a question that's sort of near and dear to my heart here recently. We're going to talk about pancreatitis in dogs. Recently, my daughter's Australian Shepherd had his first and hopefully only flare-up of pancreatitis. And um, Tigger, I believe that Sabi wrote a little bit about this in um, his book at in one his point. Book. Yes. Yeah. So. Yep. That would be the world according to Kimasabi. Yes. He's a very good writer. (laughs) He's an excellent writer. (laughs) He's an excellent writer. So, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the, I think what happened in this particular case is um, he ended up getting some extra stuff over the Christmas holiday and it resulted in this. So what are, what are your thoughts? What are your, do you have any suggestions and guidelines when this happens? Well, there are two kinds of pancreatitis. There's acute and there's chronic. And in his case, he had acute. acute. Um, and even though a lot of, uh, conjecture is that it's caused by high fat diets, you know, sled dogs, for instance, um, with that have as much as 60% fat in their diet, you know, don't end up with pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. So okay. um, sometimes it can be medication. Um, sometimes it can be, you know, eating the wrong foods that just upsets and causes inflammation. Yeah. There is sometimes a low protein diet 
um, can predispose dogs to pancreatitis. Oh, that's um, interesting. Especially if you have high fat and low protein. Okay. Corticosteroids. Um, there are there is some evidence that, that there is a linkage there, but in in your dogs case or in Hannah's dog's case, obviously the Christmas holidays, he got into food he shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, now dogs that have hypothyroidism, which affects fat metabolism can predispose a dog to pancreatitis. So, you know, overweight dogs are, are a right. problem on multiple levels, right, not only right. on their joints, but you know, pancreatitis. The, the pancreas and, and other organs. There are some breeds of dogs that are prone to pancreatitis. Uh, the Cavalier King Charles, Collies, Boxers, oh. Cocker Spaniels, and Dachshunds. Wow. Um, okay. Some dogs that have an increased risk for it are the Briard, the Sheltie, the Miniature Poodle, the German Shepherd, Terriers um, like Yorkies and Silkies and some of the other non-sporting breeds. Mm -hmm. And pancreatitis can be associated with immune-mediated diseases like um, irritable bowel syndrome um, and immune-mediated pancreatitis. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, but the thing to remember is most veterinarians will recommend a low-fat diet um, that's generally, you know, Hills or, you know, any science diet. And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fan. And if your dog uh, is, and you, if you are not a fan either, I think homemade low-fat diets are the best Mm. because you can control the quality of the food. Um, And you just want to make the the balance of the food that your proteins mostly meat. Mm -hmm. You can use eggs, um, non-fat dairy, Mm -hmm. um, some carbohydrates, you know, maybe 25%. You want to be careful with fiber for a while. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Why is that? Because again, it, it's, we don't want the, the dog's body to, especially the hind gut or the, the large intestine to have to overprocess fiber. You know, dogs are, have a pretty short digestive tract and sometimes fiber is um, blog lady, kind of a- the- activates the hind gut, right? Right. We use it sure. to, you know, how you know, help them have more relaxed stool, if you will. And you kind of just want to stay away from that for for a little bit, and make the 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 diet very simple. You know, a chicken breast without skin. Okay. You could go with turkey, goat, buffalo, rabbit is very low fat. I I, I like that, especially for dogs that you're watching weight on. Stay away from lamb and pork because they're generally high in fat. And you know, if you're going to go with ground beef, make sure you get the the lowest fat. Fat, right? Um, in ground beef, yeah, buffalo is like naturally that. low in fat. My phone did something stupid. It changed so everything you, you ideally you want a little organ meat because they're low in Why fat. Is that where the rest of the apps are? And kind of avoid 
you know, going with straight liver and kidney. Right. Um, beef heart is low in fat. So if you're not going to do raw, just put this, you can buy, um, you know, a lot of raw food companies have organ and um, bone all mixed in. And believe it or not, the fat is is relatively low. Okay. So what you can do is take, buy a commercial one, which will have the organ meats, and put it in your, your crock pot and add another low-fat uh, protein source like low-fat cottage cheese or okay. Wow. Okay. throw in a chicken breast or... That way you've got a more well-rounded meal. And, right. you know, you can add a, just, a you know, 15% carbohydrates. So maybe it's a little organic canned uh, squash. You know, stay away from pumpkin, at least because of the fiber and the way it's going to okay, move through the GI tract. Right. You know, you could do a little bit of um, some some greens but again a small amount less is more um and just cook it and if you don't like raw cook it in the in the slow cooker so many of these things people just have in their pantry and their refrigerator or freezer so that's you know it's not like you're um the stuff that you were just mentioning is stuff that people just have you know what i mean yeah but normally they probably don't have goat or (laughs) no (laughs) no those are more no, but I was just, yeah, but I was just thinking like you know the chicken breast and like yes, squash exactly. and you know all that. So that's that's really that's and then you good. slowly you're going to introduce um, you know a, a healthy fat like coconut, it's right? Really great for dogs, but yeah. not right away. You know, give right. the body some time to stabilize uh, to stabilize, and you know we worry so much. There was the old thinking of worrying so much about high protein. There is high protein and there's necessary protein. Right. And dogs need protein. Sure. And low protein to me is, unless there is a very specific issue, it it's they need protein for for muscle and that's what that's what they live on. Right. You know, right. They should be on protein diets. Now it doesn't have to be thirty percent, but it doesn't need to be twelve percent either. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, this is, that was a lot of good information. Sabi's smart. Did he tell you all this? <laughs> he did. He did. He is just the smartest boy. Well, thank you for that. Cause you, people, you can, um, again, hear this on, um, on healthy critters radio, but you also can go to, um, uh, Sabi's book and what is it again, Tigger? The, the world according to Kima Sabi. And you can get it at Biostar. So, um, good information. Thank you. And now we're at Critter Nutrition, and today I'm going to talk about the science in choosing bovine colostrum. Bovine colostrum is a sought-after supplement whose growing popularity stems from research on its important contributions to human athletic performance and health, particularly immune support and cellular growth factors. This was a good After idea, finding wasn't it? success as a human Chips. supplement, bovine colostrum now joins the equine and canine supplement industries as one of many therapeutic foods that can be fed to horses and dogs. 
But with its popularity, marketers are seeing a rich opportunity without ever understanding the raw material. Consumers unwittingly purchase colostrum based on price and on claims. When the supplement isn't effective, the animal misses out on an important supportive food and the owner suffers the dollars spent. Biostar introduced our Colostrum 38 supplement nine years ago. At that time in the animal and pet market, bovine colostrum was primarily used for milk replacement in foals and puppies. I spent considerable time researching published studies coming out of Australia and New Zealand about bovine colostrum's benefits for athletes, particularly how it regulated the immune system and helped with tissue repair. Colostrum is graded based on its percentage of immunoglobulin G, or simply IgG. Immunoglobulins are known as antibodies. They play a critical role in the immune response by recognizing and binding to antigens such as viruses and bacteria. Immunoglobulins are also the principal agents that protect the gut mucosa against pathogenic microorganisms. There are five classes of immunoglobulins, and bovine colostrum contains three of them, IgA, IgG, and IgM. The class most prevalent in bovine colostrum is IgG. This immunoglobulin is the major antibody found in blood, lymph fluid, peritoneal fluid, and is the key player in the humoral immune response. The higher the percentage of IgG, the more potent the colostrum. Think of the IgG number for bovine colostrum as being similar to the CFU number, that's colony forming units, given for grading live probiotics. A probiotic with 10 million CFUs per serving is clearly not as strong as a probiotic with 50 million CFUs per serving. Full replacement colostrum is 40 to 45% IgG. Biostar's colostrum 38 is 38% IgG. Many of the colostrum products I've seen are 15% IgG. Some companies don't provide the IgG content on their labels, so the consumer has to make phone calls or send emails to find out what it is. In the case of a few companies, customer service representatives don't know the answer when asked. 15% IgG may be fine for wellness, but a dog or cat with a compromised immune system or an overactive one, such as happens with allergies, needs colostrum with an IgG content considerably higher than 15%. Harvesting colostrum from cows who have just given birth raises several ethical questions. Of course, each person has their own concept of what is ethical, and what I find unethical may not be unethical to someone else. Bovine colostrum is harvested when the cow is calved. Some companies take colostrum in the first six hours after birth, while others wait 24 to 48 hours before taking colostrum because they want to ensure that the calf gets the first colostrum of their mother's milk. In the U.S., it's typical for calves to be separated from their mothers a day or two after birth and raised as veal calves. When I was searching for colostrum, this was one ethical point that I could not support. 
nor could I support buying colostrum from cows that had never seen a blade of grass, let alone daily time spent on pasture, and had not been given bovine growth hormone, RBGH, or had been given bovine growth hormone, or the biotechnology-created growth hormone, bovine somatrophin, which is known as RBST. I could not accept colostrum that had been irradiated, meaning treated by exposure to isotopic radiation. We know irradiated foods can cause health problems in lab animals, including cancers, chromosome abnormalities, and even premature death. Irradiation affects vitamin content of food. Particularly vulnerable are the vitamins A, E, C, K, B1, B3, and B6, which can be destroyed by irradiation. In the end, I could not find a single U.S. supplier of bovine colostrum that met my ethical criteria. Luckily, we found a small dairy cooperative in Canada that exceeded our ethical needs, including keeping the calves with their mothers for six to eight months because the quality of the milk and colostrum is so much higher when the cows aren't stressed. It's interesting to note that when calves stay with their mothers, the cows produce more milk than the calves can consume and milk of higher quality because the cow is not stressed. In Canada, irradiation is not permitted on milk products, so our colostrum is irradiation-free. The cows and calves are pasture-raised and supplemented with alfalfa hay and grain. High-temperature heat processing can destroy some of the vital components and denature the colostrum. Flash pasteurization and freeze-drying at low temperatures is the best way to preserve colostrum's vital components. Some companies freeze the colostrum, thaw it, and then freeze-dry it, which can raise the potential for pathogen contamination during the thawing process. The lower the IgG percentage, the more milligrams your dog or horse will need. A 400 milligram serving of colostrum with 15% IgG is not enough for animals in acute or chronic immune health situations. You will need to give two or three doses per day or more depending on the weight of the animal if you, if you use low IgG colostrum. One of the benefits of high IgG colostrum is that you don't need to feed a lot to get results. When purchasing colostrum, make sure you know the percentage of IgG in the colostrum you purchase. This information is often found on a company's website, but if it's not on the product page or included in the description, let that be a warning sign. High quality colostrum is defined by high quantity IgG. Find out the ethics of the sourced colostrum. Many companies publish this on their product page, and if you don't find it there, you will need to ask the company a lot of questions. How the colostrum is processed is an important key to the effectiveness of its various nutritional components. The descriptor freeze-dried may be the result of high heat processing and then freeze-drying or freezing and thawing followed by freeze-drying. The best processing for colostrum and its growth factors and nutritional components is low temperature flash pasteurization followed by freeze-drying. Colostrum is becoming a commodity item, meaning there are companies who just want to sell some kind of colostrum to make money from unsuspecting consumers. Remember that bovine colostrum's quality is extremely important for supporting immune challenges and tissue healing in horses and dogs. <laughs>
Real horses and real dogs are healthier, perform better, and recover more quickly on real food. That's why Biostar empowers horse and canine owners with 100% whole food nutrition, supplements, and feeding programs. Biostar products are made at their own certified non-GMO facility in Gordonsville, Virginia, using real fruit ingredients that are raw, freeze-dried, or dehydrated, never cooked, and are free from artificial flavors, colors, soy, corn, wheat, and molasses. The Biostar product line includes a wide range of whole food, horse and dog supplements, treats, and unique artisan poultices that embrace the ancient and traditional uses of clay and plants. Visit BiostarUS.com today and learn about whole foods and canine and equine nutrition so you can make the best decisions about the care and health of your horses and dogs. That's BiostarUS.com. Whole food nutrition the way nature intended. So we're now at Coffee Clatch, and this is the time of year of the clip or not to clip or when to clip or how much to clip. So he would... <laughs> Clippity-clap. Okay. <laughs> so um, we thought this would be a timely topic. So yes. um, I, I, I'm going to start by saying um, none of my horses are clipped. <laughs> They're retired, and they're very happy to have their fur coats. Thank you very much. There we go. But yeah, but did you clip when you were? That's the question. When you were competing, and yes, I mean, I I, I think when horses are going to be worked regularly in the winter, um, I mean, my horse had full body clipped. Yeah, um, I didn't do a trace clip. And maybe in retrospect, if I stayed north, I would not have done his legs Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, clipped the neck and back and um, done more of a trace or a hunter trace, a fox hunt trace. Yep. Um, But if you're going to Florida, you have to, it's just, you're going into a warm climate. Yeah, you have have to. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that... um, you know, what I've always done, especially, well, if I was <clears throat> going to clip before I left for Florida, I would, the first clip, um, I always, um, I always leave the hair inside their ears. Um, I always leave a nice, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do more of a full body, body clip, I would leave their legs and I always leave something on their belly, um, you know, cause there's <clears throat> lots of exposure there. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, now, um, you know, I have a couple different arrangements right now with the horses that I'm training. I have a young horse, Tigger, we were talking about this earlier. I don't clip him. Um, it's good for him to, you know, there's no reason oh, to clip a, that. Yeah, a three-year-old. And I like him rolling in the dirt and out there and experiencing life till, you know, that changes for him. But I have a couple horses that it, I love some of the ideas that people get. Um, <clears throat> they get so creative, like clipping um, the underside of the neck and the chest, leaving the legs and then having just sort of a, st- a stripe or strip, um, where your legs go and over the flank area, but still leaving the back covered. I think that's great mm-hmm. for older horses. So you can yeah. still get them cooled off. Um, but, um, you know, and, and, and that's the other thing too, is if you're, if you are staying up North, 
you know, a lot of energy goes into sweating and then, you know, then do you turn them back out right away if it's 30 degrees? Like there's so many things to consider with that. So I always do end up clipping. Um, I always do leave, I leave their back. I like to have their back warm um, if I do a full body clip and I always leave the inside of their ears. What about you, Jennifer? Oh my, it has varied so much over the years. Um, being originally from the mid-Atlantic states, any horses that were working in the winter time um, would get some kind of a haircut. Uh, but I, all, I generally would leave it up to the horse's coat. If the horse had a naturally light coat, wasn't particularly dense or long, I would, I would very likely do nothing at all until late winter, um, January, February. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because the weather and the holidays, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the horses tended to not be in heavy work if if they were in work at all. So, okay, you're going to ride on Saturday and Sundays when the weather is nice, so your horse gets sweaty. Well, Saturday or Sunday, you know, you work that into your schedule mm-hmm. that you have to take extra time to cool your horse off and, right. and make sure he's dry before he goes back outside. Or the weather is temperate enough that if he's a little bit damp, he's just going to go roll in the dirt anyway, and he'll be just right. fine. Uh, so I tried to try to leave that up to them. And one of the things that we do down here, down here in, now that we're in Florida, is we have to clip them in like September sometimes. Yeah. Depends on how fuzzy they get because they're just miserable. The, the temperatures are so high. Yeah. I think a lot of people in warmer climates discount how much stress it causes the horse to be overheated in the oh, in the fall. Gosh, yeah. If if the temperatures are warm and they've got a heavy coat and they're standing there and you see dampness on their winter coat, there's a lot of sweat happening before you even saw that sweat on the outside. So they're really quite mm-hmm. stressed. So take take that into consideration. Is it going to be smart to give the horse uh, a clip similar to what you described, Patty, where you're just, just take off the neck and the jugular area and the mm-hmm. chest, uh, maybe between their hind legs, to give them the opportunity to cool off a little bit more comfortably? And I think uh, that would make a lot more horses in these warmer climates happier. Uh, on the flip side, up north, one of, this is a, a fun trick I, I learned from a huntsman up in Massachusetts. Uh, mm. To know whether or not your horse is warm enough in his binkies when he's clipped. Mm-hmm. Because up, up north in winter, it's hunting season. Everybody gets everything from the elbows and stifles up shaved off. So they're all in heavy, big, heavy blankets. They look like they look like tiny children in their snowsuits. But he said, you, if your horse, when you pull his blankets off, and he has, particularly on the large muscled areas, like on his croup, and the top most part of their shoulder blades, if their coat is greasy, like when you rub your fingers in it, it has a white greasy feel to it. That means your horse is not warm enough, and he needs more clothes. Oh, I know. He said, no. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I, he said, come, come look wow. at my horses. Now, his horses did not get extra special grooming care. He was very, very old school. There was a curry comb and a dandy brush and a towel in his grooming kit. And that was it. And those horses' coats were so shiny and there was no grease in them. Wow. And he and we laughed because the horses really did look like they were wearing sleeping bags. The blankets were so thick. Yeah. So I've, I took that to heart and I used that mm-hmm. as one of my gauges as to whether or not, on a consistent basis, if I'm keeping enough clothing on my horse, that doesn't mean that very second he's warm enough. Like, for example, your horse is shivering. Hello, he's cold. 
But mm-hmm. in the long term, okay, uh, my horse got clipped a month ago. Am I keeping him warm enough for the past month? Look how greasy his coat is. Well, probably you haven't been. And I have zero scientific method reason for that working, but I took it to heart and I use it. <laughs> well, that's 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 good. That's that's a good thing to yeah. to have in your your toolbox for yeah, guidance because right. I think you know um, you stick your hands underneath the blanket. You hope that that does it. You know, and you <clears throat> and we where we all they have hide, we have skin. Yep. Right. So it's just different. So yeah, that's right. And of course um, it's going to feel warm. Your hands are cold. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And my that's new favorite clip, point. something I've discovered recently, because every, every few seasons or so clipping is like high fashion in New York. The, the styles change. And for oh, a yeah. long, yeah, for a long time, the trace clip was it. And everybody would get creative on how the stripes would go from, <laughs> from ears to tail. Oh, my yeah. new favorite clip is something they're calling the Irish clip. Oh. And I love it because it's one straight line, and that's it. Oh, interesting. And it just goes from stifle to withers. That's where <gasps> the line is. Okay. You take everything from there. You take a piece of tape, and you go from the stifle to the withers, and you shave everything off below it to their elbow. And that's huh. it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And and I liked it because I'm a really crappy clipper, and I needed one straight line. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's well, there you go. That's, that's so funny. And well, how often cool. how often do you clip your horses, Patty? Do you have to do it several times it, a year? Is it different for different? It depends horses? on what level the horse is. Like if it's somebody that's working FEI, yeah, I'll do it um, once or twice. Especially if you know if I'm down in Florida. If it's a younger horse. Um, you know, the first time around and I just, you know, I, it, and again, it depends on their coat and how they grow for mm-hmm. sure. But, um, I would say younger horses, I tend to try to stick around once and mm-hmm. I wait to do it. Um, younger meaning older than four. Mm-hmm. Um, and the older ones I'll probably end up doing twice just because I don't really, I don't like stressing. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I left Texas is I worry about horses getting too hot or too cold. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I don't like them to to be too hot either. So, um, um, so I'd say twice, um, for the most part, two times a year. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how late in the season will you do your final clip? Well, again, it depends if I'm coming back from Florida or not, but cause a lot of times I, they would be fine through Florida. Then I'd get home and then boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I really go by what the, I had a stallion that I had to clip, um, actually all throughout the year. Cause he just grew so much of a coat and he would just get too hot. So he got clipped all the time. So mm-hmm. it just really, I think a lot of it depends on the, it, the, the level of the horse and the, how much their, how thick their coat is. So I'm going to say, you know, on some of them, um, I would do it even into April. I know that, um, wow, you know, I have, it just depends it, uh, on the horse and yeah. if they're not losing their coat. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Because I don't want to, I don't want to play the Russian roulette of, um, them being too hot and then not being mm-hmm. able to, you know, to work them properly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So there you go. Well, that's all good. Good info guys. That was a, a good topic. I think. Yeah, really good. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. Get the Horse Radio Network phone app on iOS or Android by searching for Horse Radio Network in the App Store. It's free and easy to use. 
For details about today's show, go to HealthyCrittersRadio.com, where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio. Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at HorseRadioNetwork.com. Love your dog. Hug your horse. Feed your chickens. Clean your litter box. Dance with your goat. Slither with your snakes. Howl at the moon. Hang with your hamster. Party with your parrot. Waddle with your walrus. Outwit your otter. Cuddle your cows. Rap with your raptor. Go chipping with your chipmunks. Forgive your fox. While hedging your hog. We also recommend that you rack with your raccoon. Gyrate with your giraffe. Meditate with a meerkat. Uber with your orangutan. Facebook with your flamingo. Ponder with your panda. Walk with your wookie. Yawn with your yak. Twitter with your toucan. Go raining with your reindeer. Dropbox your dragon. (laughs) 